Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. One of the most important issues that we all deal with and on a regular basis, and we cover on this program, is healthcare. There's never a shortage of opinion, never a shortage of concern, never a shortage of stories that deal with healthcare. Now, on this past Monday, Canada's premiers called for new and sustainable healthcare funding, a new partnership with the federal government through the Canada Health Transfer. Meanwhile, the Canadian Medical Association, and we speak with the presidents of the CMA quite regularly on this program, the Canadian Medical Association has alerted, and they did this a little earlier this year, critical family physician shortage must be addressed. We have a population of about 38 million people in this country, and some 4.8 million Canadians have no family doctor. That's a big number. And with the family physicians, that's the first chain, the first link in the healthcare chain. If you don't have a family doctor, where do you go? Walk-in clinics, emergency rooms. If you go to an ER at a hospital, that puts more strain on the healthcare system. Dr. Lawrence Lowe is the president of the College of Family Physicians of Canada, and Dr. Lowe joins us on the Roy Green Show. Dr. Lowe, how are you? Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, I always ask doctors how they are. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> I imagine you ask most of your guests how they're doing. Yeah, nobody ever asks a doctor, so I try to make it a point to do that. Well, you know, so I, I just it. said, yeah, what I just said, Dr. Lowe, is the family physician is essentially the first building block of healthcare. Um, a patient consulting with a family physician is heavily compromised in Canada when they don't have a family doctor. CMA data showing some 4.8 million Canadians have no family doctor. And as I said before, perhaps walk to a walk-in clinic or a hospital emergency room. Would you just put this into perspective with us, just an overall perspective before we get down to nuts and bolts, of 4.8 million people in this country having no family doctor? Yeah, and so the challenge becomes when you have that many people uh, who don't have access to a family doctor, uh, you have uh, individuals who need to have more episodic care, one-off care, uh, sometimes with providers who don't fully know or understand their medical history, who don't fully understand the complexity they may be dealing with. Uh, this leads to duplication. This leads to potentially ineffective treatments or even treatments that may not necessarily be uh, salient uh, or optimal uh, for, for what actually presents at the time. Uh, the important thing about family medicine as a building block, especially a family doctor who uh, has the opportunity to get to know you uh, through your life course, uh, through uh, the duration of all your all the various medical conditions you may face, is that they're able to much more quickly figure out what's wrong and how it all fits into your specific context as a patient. So I tweeted out earlier today that we were going to be speaking with you, and there was a response on Twitter, at the Roy Green Show, and I received a number of emails, and the bottom line of the emails I received was this. Why is there a family doctor shortage in Canada? Dr. Lowe, why is there? Well, I think we're seeing the end result of decades of, uh, of underinvestment and under-resourcing in uh, the primary care sector, uh, in addition to uh, the transition out of the acute phase of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think what you're seeing is that family doctors have uh, held the line uh, for uh, for quite a long time uh, with the, without an increase in remuneration, uh, without uh, increased assistance in terms of administrative support, and with increasing uh, complexity uh, and burdens of care 
care, especially now in the in the post-pandemic period, where many patients are presenting not only with their you know run-of-the-mill uh, chronic conditions or medical conditions, but also a lot of mental health, a lot of healing, a lot of trauma uh, from the last two years that is now on top of uh, on top of everything else that they're dealing with. And so, uh, family doctors have held the line for a long time, but they're they're burnt out. Uh, they're not necessarily well supported, um, and uh, and and really have also uh, gone through quite a traumatic time in the last few years as well. I understand as well that the mean age for family physicians in this country is 49. Is that a concern? It absolutely is a concern. And I think uh, related to that, uh, it, it's, it's a concern from two in two ways. Many of the more experienced older family physicians uh, are, you know, when, when they get tired of, of the ongoing treadmill, what, what happens is they end up basically just deciding to retire. Um, and off they go, uh, you know, and the, the challenge becomes then those patients are now without a family doctor. Um, that actually presents more significant burdens for those who are just starting out in practice or in their mid-practice who are basically trying to, uh, trying to continue uh, but also facing significant pressures. In addition to, uh, you'll have to remember, many of these uh, people in earlier in their career are graduating with, uh, you know, un, uh, you know, never before seen levels of educational debt related to increase in medical tuition, et cetera, over the last little while. So it's really a significant burden all across the system. And it's why there really needs to be a look at uh, how you get some additional uh, measures in place right now to help retain the family physicians that we already have in the system while also building out the pipeline to, to train more in the, in the, get, in the long run. Is it fair to suggest that being a family doctor is the perhaps most complex, the most demanding um, part of medicine of being a physician? I'm, I'm just thinking about the multifaceted nature of the job, medical records and medical forms constantly, coordinating patient care across numerous healthcare care realities. Um, there's always something that's going on in a family doctor's life. I don't think it, it ends when office hours ends. What, what has to be done then? What's your suggestion? What does the, uh, the college believe has to be done? What are the potential solutions to the family doctor shortage? Well, I think there. I think you're absolutely right, and every every specialty has its uh, its unique complexities and challenges. But there is no doubt that the family practice environment has become uh, immensely challenging in the last little while. Uh, what needs to be done uh, is really twofold. First of all, we need to look at it, augmenting the training pipeline uh, in terms of trying to uh, figure out how we essentially graduate more family physicians in the long run, especially to deal with our aging population here in Canada. But you can't just do that without necessarily fixing the practice environment that people are in right now. And so I think there needs to be the, the college has been calling for things such as, uh, you know, uh, the creation of an administrative support fund to provide immediate administrative relief for all those forms, for all those uh, things that aren't necessarily direct care. The things that family doctors are, are trained and uniquely trained to do and, and taking care of complex clinical situations. So funding administrative supports uh, right now, funding administrative supports within uh team-based models to take a lot of the pressure uh, and burden off of family doctors so that they can focus on caring for their patients in the best way they can. Uh, certainly for the new graduates, as I talked about, new graduates are starting out in practice, uh, debt relief from educational debt, et cetera, uh, you know, assistance with people who are willing to start up and, and maintain comprehensive family practices. And then, of course, you know, a mental health and relief and supports fund as well for family physicians, just so that they're also being taken care of as they take care of other people. These are some of the things that the college has, has been advancing over the last year. One more question for you. We speak, as I mentioned earlier, quite regularly 
with the presidents of the Canadian Medical Association, and we talk about the difficulties, that the challenges, the crisis, really, within healthcare in this country. Hundreds of thousands of surgeries delayed, largely because of the issues of the pandemic, but they were there before. Um, illnesses not being diagnosed, illnesses like cancer and, and heart disease not being diagnosed. From the family physician's perspective, what needs to be addressed, first of all? We understand the funding model. That's brought up quite regularly, and I, I don't discount that. But what, from your perspective, needs to be addressed right away as far as providing appropriate, reliable, dependable health care to Canadians is concerned? Yeah, absolutely. And the reality is the backlog from the pandemic is significant. Uh, and that would have happened regardless of whether measures were taken in the past or not. But that, that backlog uh, is something that was, was just natural out of, a, out of a healthcare crisis. The best thing to do while trying to tackle the backlog within the acute care system, though, is to make sure that the work of family doctors and also partners in public health out in the community are supported because you don't want to add to that backlog. So you really want to try to be in the community, uh, allowing people to access their primary care uh, physician, their family practices, uh, you know, having public health create the healthy context and conditions so that we can actually forestall a lot more illnesses, keep it out in the community, of, you know, an ounce of prevention of how to cure uh, before it actually ends up adding to the backlog in the acute care system and the crisis we're seeing there. So I think, you know, certainly the funding model can't be overstated enough, and you mentioned it at the get-go, but some of those other factors that I mentioned to retain physicians, you know, support for administrative paperwork, uh, you know, as supports through multidisciplinary teams, uh, making sure that current physicians in the system are just better supported, uh, you know, assistance with debt relief, et cetera. These are all things uh, that can help to retain existing family doctors and make sure that they're able to focus their uh, limited time on care that matters and care that's going to make a difference in helping to prevent that backlog from getting bigger. Food insecurity in this country, serious issue, almost Six million Canadians last year were living with food insecurity, and 1.4 million of those Canadians were children. Today, it's not any better, and my guest will tell us that it's income, not the cost of food, which is the greater issue. Food banks are not the solution either. We'll be talking to the food bank's CEO tomorrow. The solution is something very different. Professor Valerie Tarasuk joins us from the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Toronto, lead investigator for Proof, a research program which studies household food insecurity across Canada. Uh, Professor Tarasuk, thank you very much for taking the time. Tell us, please, what the objectives of Proof are and how do you define food insecurity? So let me start with the second question. So we define food insecurity as inadequate or insecure access to food due to financial constraints. And so it's all those pieces, inadequate, insecure, and due to financial constraints. That's the way food insecurity is measured and monitored in Canada. Um, and so the objectives of proof, we started in 2011, and we came together with a goal to... Um, to identify policy 
options to address this problem. I mean, by 2011, it was already clear that food insecurity was a big issue in Canada and that it was uh, kind of, that it was festering, right? So there wasn't really any uptake, even though there'd been a lot of documentation of problems, there wasn't really anybody doing anything about it. And so we started to use national survey data that's monitoring the problem to try to get a handle on what could be done. It's terribly disturbing to read when it comes to food insecurity in this country that last year, 5.8 million people were food insecure and really disturbing to know that 1.4 million of those people were children. Um, can, Can you provide a perspective on that, please? And what will that number perhaps look like now, given the increasing cost of food when tied to inflation? Yeah. The the experiences that get measured that, you know, those 5.8 million people would be living with range from worrying about running out of food and not having money to buy more. So, you know, anxiety, but around, you know, a threat of fairly significant deprivation through to um, compromising quality. And at its most extreme, people reducing what they, you know, the amount they eat actually going hungry because of a lack of food. So in that 5.8 million, we spend that spectrum. Not everybody is going hungry, but anybody in that 5.8 is somebody who's reported fairly significant concerns about their ability to feed themselves and their family. Um, what does it, what does it look like now? Well, the most worrisome part of food insecurity is the bottom end of that continuum, the severe food insecurity. Um, so, you know, people who truly um, at times have not got enough to eat because of a lack of money for food. And my fear is as food prices have risen so much and also, you know, fuel uh, rents, basic needs, you know, have become more expensive. My fear is that more of this 5.8 million will be pushed down to the bottom end of that spectrum. So, you know, their experiences of hardship will be even worse um, because their whatever money they have go, is going less far right now. Yeah. I sometimes put uh, two surveys or two sets of statistics together to come up with this story. And, and I'll do that here. 5.8 million Canadians last year, food insecure. At the same time, we've been hearing for a number of years that close to 50%, sometimes slightly over, sometimes slightly under the 50% mark of Canadians are within $200 of not being able to pay their bills at the end of the month. So when you take that and you put that together with the food insecurity issue, that's a very troubling reality, and particularly for a first world country that is a breadbasket country. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure, yeah. I mean, some of those people that aren't going to be able to pay their bills, you know, they'll they'll incur debt. Um, maybe they'll end up having to default on something like, a, you know, a car lease or something. But, you know, not all of them will get to a point where they're actually, you know, concerned about their ability to get enough to eat because of the problems. But what we, what we know for sure, it's good that you're putting the pieces together because what we know for sure, we, we identify as people, people as food insecure by asking a bunch of questions, 18 questions actually, about um, their experiences of being able to access the food they need. But as soon as we scratch the surface, what we find is that 
people who are living in food insecure situations invariably, especially if they're severely food insecure, they're invariably um, struggling to pay rent, utilities, telecommunications bills. If they have prescription medications, and most of them do because food insecurity is very, very tightly tied to poor health in this country. So people with prescription medications, if there's any cost associated with them, are very likely not to be filling those prescriptions or taking them as prescribed. So, you know, we, we start with seeing the problem through the lens of food because it's a very good way to find people that are really, really struggling financially. But as soon as you open up the door, what you start to see is all kinds of other um, manifestations of financial hardship that are all coming together in that same household. Yeah, we have 30 seconds left. Would you put this together for us, please? Um, Income has a greater impact on food insecurity than food prices. How does that work? Well, it's for the reason I just said, that if... Because by the food, food isn't a budget item in it, you know, by itself. That the amount of money somebody has in their purse to spend on food is a function of how much money comes into that purse, but also how much else has to go for rent and other things. So, you know, a small the proportion of income typically that Canadians spend on food is I don't know somewhere around ten, twelve, fourteen percent, maybe fifteen percent. It's not that much. So the bigger the bigger influences, you know, if the price of, I don't know, cabbage goes up, the bigger drivers are how much money's in that purse. Russia announced today that it will immediately suspend its implementation of a U.N. brokered grain deal that has seen more than 9 million tons of grain exported from Ukraine during the war and has brought down soaring global food prices. And it's feeding people around the world. Now, Russia says that because they claim uh, Ukraine attacked the Black Sea fleet in Crimea with uh, drones, that they're going to now just stop this grain deal. Ukraine at the same time says they're not responsible. But just think of the daily carnage that is caused by Russia in Ukraine and uh, draw your own conclusions. So that's one thing I want to talk to our next guest about. And uh, another is the state of readiness of the Canadian Armed Forces as the threat to Canada's claims of Arctic sovereignty, we're told, are going to be tested. And we hear from current senior officers and uh, retired officers that the Canadian Armed Forces are nowhere near personnel requirements or military hardware requirements. What we have is old and uh, at least in, in large part, and we're not really capable of defending ourselves if it comes to that. Small military, not well equipped. We look to the South. We look to the Americans to take care of us. We do have an order in for 15 new warships. The parliamentary budget officer has just projected the costs for those to be 88 billion. Last year it was 77 billion, but uh, inflation drove the price up and the federal government's original budget was 60 billion dollars. We're being reminded by our NATO allies that we're really not holding up our end of the bargain. We committed to a 2% GDP expenditure on uh, military annually. We're nowhere near that. We're joined by Vice, Vice Admiral Mark Norman, former commander of the Royal Canadian Navy and Vice Chief of the Defence Staff. Admiral, thank you for joining us. Good to talk to you again. Well, good afternoon, Roy, to you and your listeners. So that's quite a uh, setup you've uh, provided. Uh, I'm wondering how we're going to get through all that. 
Well, let's give it a try. And why don't we, Admiral, if you wouldn't mind starting with uh, with Russia, your your view of Putin, what he's doing in Ukraine, and now his decision to suspend the grain deal with Ukraine over what he says was an attack on his Black Sea fleet in Crimea. Well, Roy, you know, we've talked about uh, Putin before, and, and nothing's changed. We're just seeing um, continued evidence of his uh, pathological behavior. Um, he's created an alternate reality uh, where he is uh, front and center. And, um, you know, our perceptions in the West of what he's doing really uh, aren't figuring into uh, his calculus. And this um, grain um, shutdown, I guess, as you've just described, sadly, is another example of how um, these types of events are are not isolated in the sense that uh, Canadians are not insulated from them and nor is the rest of the world. And so now we have um, uh, an underlying concern about energy security as we roll into the winter for, you know, almost a billion uh, people living in Europe supplied by Russia. Um, and uh, and now we've got a food security issue. And, and uh, you know, these are not um, by accident. And Putin is basically holding the rest of the world hostage uh, because he wants to annex uh, this territory, which has been central to his strategy from the outset. Yeah, he wants USSR 2.0. Um, Admiral, I watched uh, some video of Putin himself watching Russia's strategic nuclear forces and their annual exercises earlier this week. And it's the first time since the invasion of Ukraine and his references to Russia having and being willing to use nuclear arsenal, their nuclear arsenal. It's the first time I've seen him do that. Yet two days later, on Thursday, he said he sees no need to use nuclear weapons against Ukraine and that Russia isn't an enemy of the West, just Western leaders seeking to subjugate Russia. How do you deal with this person? How do you deal with him on the international stage? How do we deal with him? You know, I, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in the psychology of uh, Vladimir Putin, but, uh, you know, other experts, far more um, uh, qualified experts, have, have alluded to the fact that uh, fundamentally at, at, at the center of this, he's a bully. And um, so as soon as uh, those, uh, those of us in the West, as we describe it, show any kind of softening or any kind of weakness, uh, he, he exploits it. And as for the threats of uh, the use of weapons, uh, this has been a recurring issue. And, um, you know, I, I think it is uh, a legitimate concern. But at the same time, I also believe that he is very effectively um, deterring uh, Western action by uh, the continued reference to uh, these weapons, which basically cause people no end of consternation. So, um I think, you know, he's he's and he's cornered and that's part of this, too. He's he's a bit of a cornered rat, uh, to put it quite bluntly. If we can bring this back home, Admiral Norman, when we look at uh, our military, Canada's military in 2022 in the state the world is in, uh, how under equipped and understaffed is the Canadian Armed Forces today? And isn't this something that. Well, we, this didn't happen overnight. We saw this coming. Yeah, so to the second part of your question, sadly, Roy, I mean, this has been decades in the making. Um, 
and really since the end of the Cold War, so we're looking at the 90s here, uh, early 90s, mid 90s, um, we, we've never really taken a proper look at um, what we want the armed forces to be. Yes, there's been policy updates and the previous government and this government have made great sweeping statements. And But, but really, um, the political statements are not fully supported um, both within the governments of the day, nor are they supported um, with the necessary financial means to actually achieve it. We, we've got a force which is uh, out of balance in many respects. Um, the, the structure needs uh, a real rethink. And uh, even when we look at what we're supposed to have, as we're hearing now, and, and these these uh, reports are quite alarming, and and I think that they're they're um, legitimate in terms of being referred to as a crisis. When you're looking at an armed forces that is only about seventy thousand regular and about thirty ish thousand reservists, and you're down ten thousand full time. Um, in, on paper, which means you're probably down more than that because on any given day, uh, one out of four people are not available for operations for a variety of reasons from um, illness to administrative uh, leave and, and things like that. So this, this is a real problem. And as far as the equipment's concerned, well, you and I have discussed that many times. Um, I think, uh, you know, the ship example you described in your intro is a, is a great one. Um, you know, originally announced in 2007, we're now 15 years into the conversation. And uh, as your listeners will appreciate, um, inflation uh, is, is a bad thing uh, on a good day. And inflation in military equipment um, is typically in the low double digits. It's consistent. And uh, the cost of these uh, very expensive pieces of equipment are, are astronomical to begin with. And when we can't get our act together and it takes us nearly 20 years to deliver something, um, sadly, uh, the taxpayers are, are going to have to foot the bill here. It is sad, but it is necessary. We, we, this, this is essential. We have to have our military has to have the equipment in order to do the job. Absolutely. And, and um, you know, we talked before. Um, part of this is is uh, a, a situation where we have cycles of uh, neglect. Um, we get ourselves into a situation where um, every major procurement is a crisis because we've allowed the equipment to basically rust out. I mean, these ships that are designed to be replaced, uh, they were supposed to have been replaced at the beginning of this decade. Um you know, I commissioned HMCS Halifax as a junior officer, was the lead ship in the class, went in the water in 1990. Um, so it's 32 years old uh, this year, and uh, they're expected to last another 10 or 15 years while we get the new ships uh, up and running. And that's that's not an effective way to run a military. And those are just examples of the kinds of problems that we see across the entire inventory of the armed forces. And, and we've got to get smarter. There, there are more innovative ways we can do this. And uh, we just continue to perpetuate what I think is uh, bad behavior. 
Admiral, before we talk about the innovative ways we could go about procuring for this country the military equipment that we require and uh, generate the kind of force in personnel that Canada requires to defend itself, I think we should establish first, I'll ask you about this, is this country an attractive option for another nation with significant power and expansionist ambitions? Wow. Um, well, uh, we know that uh, you know Russia is uh, flexing its muscles uh, increasingly um, in the Arctic. We also know that China, in particular, is uh, expressing overt ambition around um, the Arctic. Um, in fact, uh, you know they've they've uh, got observer status on the Arctic Council, which should be of concern in and of itself. Um, they are uh, operating uh, research vessels uh, on an ongoing basis. And at the last time I checked, they were building more ice-capable ships than uh, the remainder of the Arctic nations combined. So, um, yeah, I think these are real concerns. Do I believe that there's going to be an overt attack um, on Canada in a traditional um, military sense? Probably not. But I think that this comes down to how we um, defend our sovereignty um, and, more importantly, how we defend our interests. And, you know, before the break, you made an interesting comment where I just want to come back to that. Our relationship with the United States, you know, I'm I'm not going to speak for them, but I think they're growing increasingly tired of uh, us um, basically uh, shirking the bill or shirking our responsibilities and not paying our bills. Um, And, you know, we've had a couple of recent um, reminders from some of our NATO allies that we need to step up. So um, that's a that's a bit of a full circle response to your question. Yeah, and and we have been told uh, by the Secretary General of NATO, and as you say, the United States, come on, pony up, you uh, you people signed up, and 2% of your GDP is what's supposed to go to uh, to uh, your military. Um, so how would we go about being innovative and uh, obtaining the equipment that the Canadian Armed Forces require in order to do their work and do it in a proud way? Uh, how do we do that, Admiral? Yeah, well, you know, there's no easy, quick uh, solution here. As we discussed earlier, you know, these problems are decades in the making. And I think I'm just going to talk about the people side of it, and then we'll talk about the equipment side of it. I think as it relates to the people side of it, um, we've got got to uh, come up with a more competitive way to deal with um, recruiting. And notwithstanding, I'm sure there's a variety of opinions out there as to whether people do or don't want to serve in the military, and and, and that's a whole other discussion. But for those people who are expressing interest in the military, our process is incredibly laborious and uh, time-consuming, and we lose a lot. We lose people because we can't turn around a reasonable offer um, quickly enough, and uh, people will go elsewhere. And so I think that there's lots of room there for us to be smarter, leaner, faster, and innovative. And we need to dump some of these traditional um, bureaucratic systems that we have. Now, um, that can apply as well to procurement. I think what we what we need to do is we need to get away from this cycle of what I described earlier as a crisis. We need to get to a point where we're, we're buying equipment 
Um, and it, we don't have to buy it. I say buy it. We could be leasing a lot of equipment. There's a lot of stuff that the taxpayers don't need to own. Um, it's cheaper in the long term uh, to have somebody else own it and operate it uh, or let the military operate it. There are things that uniformed people need to do. There's things that uniformed people don't need to do. Um, but we need to have a faster cycle um, so that we're not hanging on to um, 30, 40 year old major pieces of equipment, which then cost incredible amounts of money to maintain. Um, and they become that much more expensive because we don't, we don't know how to rapidly replace them. And I think, you know, there's lots of, um, private sector, um, uh, best practices out there. Uh, and we just need to move away from the traditional buy it every 30 years, own it for 40 years, um, and uh, pay more than we need to kind of model. Um, yeah, there's certain things that, like warships, for example, that they're a huge investment. But if we have a shipbuilding industry that can actually turn around ships on a regular basis, we should be building them quicker, and we should be replacing them um, sooner so we get away from these problems. And in the long term, it will be cheaper but it's a hard pill to swallow up front, and that's what we're witnessing right now. So there's a story that is uh, making its way across this country, and uh, it's actually an international story, but it applies right here at home, and it's the story of China establishing, quote, police stations, end quote, three of them in Canada. They're not just doing it in Canada. They're doing it internationally and have been for some time. What's their objective? Well, let's ask our guest. He's a former Reuters journalist who later established a corporate risk advisory firm in Shanghai. I'll give you a little background here. On the 10th of July, 2013, our guest, Peter Humphrey, was at home with his wife, getting ready for their day in China when police kicked in their door, separated Peter and his wife from each other, and both of them from their son. And it would be two years before they were reunited. Mr. Humphrey's experience in China in confinement was horrendous. In 2015, Peter Humphrey was deported from China to the UK after a great deal of international outcry. He was diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer, and he's been struggling with his health since. Last year, the UK's television regulator found China's party state broadcaster had aired forced TV confessions, including one by Peter Humphrey. And Peter joins us on the Roy Green Show. Peter, thank you very much. Uh, first of all, how are you? Um, I'm, 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 I'm probably through. Um, you know, my, my health is manageable, and uh, I'm spending a lot of time focused on China now. Well, let's talk about China and this police station reality. For many Canadians, it's a question mark. What's going on? What is China doing with three, quote, police stations, end quote, in this country? But it's not that unusual. They do this sort of thing internationally. Please share with us what it's about. <laughs> well, yes, I'm, I'm aware that Canada is now investigating the presence of illegal Chinese police stations on your soil. Um, and I've also seen um, a, a Chinese response to this saying that they're just helping their citizens who live in Canada to get new driving licenses and so forth. Well, you have to laugh at that one because, you know, there are now quite a number of countries where Chinese police stations have been reported as being present. And there's been, there's been a similar incident um, to yours in Holland and Britain. 
Um, I've obtained a list in Chinese from an online source which lists the addresses of three Chinese police stations in my own country, two in London and one in Scotland. And Ireland has announced um, this week that it's shutting one down in Dublin. So the, the Irish seem to have a bit more courage, evidently. But it seems to me that these police stations um, are often controlled out of China's Fujian province. And I, I don't know why yet, but the city of Fuzhou often figures in their names. It's a really bizarre threat. And I think you need to see it in the wider context of a massive Chinese influence and infiltration campaign across the whole world, disrespecting other countries' sovereignty. Now, I could reel off a whole list of those things if you want. Um, you know, the so-called Confucius Institutes, which have been used to subvert our universities, um, for example, and illegal renditions of Chinese fugitives back to China, kidnappings included. Um, the misuse of Interpol red notices and extradition requests, espionage as well, of course, spying on Chinese ethnic communities abroad, including in Canada. Um, and we had a really interesting incident here in the UK just a week ago in Manchester, where there was a group of peaceful protesters from Hong Kong uh, protesting outside the gates of the, the consulate. And a group of consular staff, in other words, diplomats, came out of the gate and physically attacked these protesters. And they dragged one of them back into the yard of the consulate and beat the hell out of him. And even the consul general himself was filmed personally pulling the hair of this poor man. Um, you know, uh, it just goes on and on, this list of things that China does abroad in complete disregard and disrespect for the laws of the countries concerned. Um, and, you know, uh, China's dictator, Xi Jinping, um, has just grabbed more power. And all of these abuses that we see on, on foreign soil have all happened under Xi Jinping's rule during the last 10 years. And he's just now grabbed a lot more power uh, at the Communist Party's five-yearly Congress a week ago. And if you look at the speech, speeches he gave at that Congress, the messages in the speech speeches are very clear. He signaled that China under sea is about to become even more aggressive in its behavior um, towards the rest of the world. So I think it's a pretty dismal situation. And uh, the governments who are victims of this uh, Chinese Communist Party behavior need to, need to fight back. Yeah, there's a story here that Safeguard Defenders, you're very familiar with them, um, international organization which monitors and reports on China's extracurricular activities, they're saying that uh, China and its police forces, extracurricularly, persuaded, quote-unquote, 230,000 individuals living outside China to, quote, voluntarily, end quote, return to China and face potential criminal charges. So a rendition of almost a quarter million people. That's right. I mean, this has been going on for quite a number of years under Xi Jinping. I mean, he started this thing um, uh, 10 years ago. Um, it had a couple of names. One of them was Operation Fox Hunt. And his, his idea was bring back all these fugitives, um, some of them supposedly corruption uh, offenders, but a lot of them actually political uh, fugitives, bring them back to China and punish them by every which way. So when you talked about this 230,000 
number. This is probably a number which goes back over this this 10-year period. But, you know, what we've been seeing in the, in the latest story over the last week or two is something new. It's a new phenomenon, um, which, you know, we, I don't think we knew until very recently that there were these police outposts, Chinese police outposts, heavily involved in this kind of thing. And we're beginning to now get um, uh, anecdotal reports from individual Chinese living in different countries um, around Europe and so forth, that indeed people from these police outposts have been involved in that so-called persuasion campaign. And normally that persuasion involves harassment. It could, it could even involve illegal detention, um, but it certainly involves harassment. And it usually involves blackmail. It involves threats against family members who are still living in China. So the pressure is enormous, and that is how they're persuaded a number of people to go back. When I was in, in Qingpu prison in Shanghai myself back in 2013, 2014, 2015, that period, um, I met several Chinese prisoners who had come back to China that way from various countries. One, one of my cellmates has been persuaded to come back from Thailand. So this persuasion has been going on for a long time. But the sudden revelation of all these illegal police stations in our country, your country, and so forth, is something rather new. Um, and I think it expresses um, an incredible cheek on the part of the Chinese, uh, violating sovereignty. And we need to stand up to it. Yeah. Uh, well, the Chinese ambassador has very bluntly attacked Canada and perceived Canadian policies toward Beijing from right here in Canada. Uh, Peter, would China be concerned at all about an RCMP investigation into its so-called police stations within this country? Do they care? Um, I think they probably care because, you know, this method that they've been using has now been rumbled. And, and I think we're going to see investigations similar to yours being carried out in quite a number of countries. Um, I believe the Netherlands has, has already uh, started one as well. Um, I think I put my fraud investigator's hat on for a minute because that, that's what I was. I was a fraud investigator in China. And you know, one of the key things, when a, when a company name or an organization name drops on your desk and you're, you're told to investigate them, um, in this case, a so-called alleged police station at a particular address, you, you do searches on, on corporate registration records, for example, because I think it's highly likely um, that these outposts may have registered, registered themselves as companies locally. Um, and it would be interesting to check that and pull the records and see whose names are on those records. That would be very helpful in taking this investigation a step further. Peter, do you, uh, do you know what led to your incarceration? What were they after? Well, um, you know, I had I had spent, as you know, I spent 20 years in journalism, and then the 15 years after that, I spent in the due diligence industry, um, mostly working for Western companies, you know, inside their operations to investigate fraud and root out fraud and corruption inside their business operations. And I had my own company called ChinaWise for 10 years. Um, nothing went wrong, and then one day um, it did go. And, you know, there was that knock on the door and, you know, dozens of police burst into our premises and, as you said, um, locked us up. And, and we were charged with illegally acquiring personal information, um, which was a completely false charge because we had not used illegal methods in our, in our work. 
Um, but, it, you know, it appeared that we had offended a particular person who we investigated on behalf of one of our clients. And that person somehow got wind of our investigation because somehow um, our client had been clumsy with our report. And as a result, you know, she asked her police friends to arrest us. And, and that is what happened. Um, and we went through a tremendous uh, ordeal for the next two years, as you pointed out, as a result of that. Um, essentially, you know, the, the due diligence industry is very much a part of any normal functioning market economy. Um, you have it in Canada. We have it here in the UK. Um, there are privacy restrictions which you must follow. Um, if you're in that industry, you've got to try and obey the law and so forth. Um, we did in China. We were fully compliant. Um, but this was an act of, of personal revenge by one person who we had investigated. And unfortunately, the Chinese judicial system is driven more often than not by personal vendettas and revenge. Um, it's not driven by forensic evidence and so forth. Um, it's really, you know, somebody with influence within the Communist Party, with influence on the judges and the prosecutors and the police who um, drives uh, an investigation and the arrest of a particular individual. So that's really um, how it happened. And unfortunately, my business was destroyed. Um, and uh, when we got out, there was no there was no hope of ever really going back to that that kind of business and that way of life. Our, our life in China was completely destroyed. Mm -hmm. What are conditions like in Chinese prisons? The conditions in prisons are very harsh, um, extremely harsh, um, but they've gotten a lot harsher in the last five or six years. They, they certainly got harsher since I left prison um, because Xi Jinping the leader of China has been constantly ratcheting things up, um, toughening things up in the prisons. In fact, one of the first things he said when he came into power 10 years ago to his underlings was build a lot more prisons because he, he anticipated locking more people up. Um, and while I was there, I saw conditions deteriorating. And since then, I've seen them further deteriorate because one of my activities now is to mentor the families uh, in different places around the world and have somebody locked up in China. So I'm, I'm quite aware of, of what's going on. I mean, just to give you a few examples, when I say harshness, you know, in the pre-trial detention center where somebody can be for two to three years um, without uh, moving on to a formal prison, everyone sleeps on the floor. You know, there's a dozen or more people in a small cell, um, no furniture, no bunk beds or anything like that. And, and there's no air conditioning there's in, 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 in the uh, summer and no heating in the winter. It's freezing and, and there's no hot water. The toilet is a hole in the floor in the corner of the cell. Um, you know, and the, the food is really rough. It's, it's you know, some gritty rice and, uh, and the remains of vegetables. I wouldn't call them vegetables, but the remains of vegetables stir-fried. Stir um uh, and uh, it's, it's very repetitive. There's hardly any meat in the diet, hardly any protein. Um, and the prisoners are sort of sitting in, in those detention center cells day long uh, on the floor, and eating on the floor and, and um, sleeping on the floor. And when they move on to a prison, um, they do have bunk beds in the cells, but the cells are extremely crowded again. You know, you have, have maybe 18 um, bunks 
uh, spread over two tiers, two, two levels um, in a cell. Um, and a similar thing with the hole in the floor for the toilet and, and, and a sink with cold water. Um, and uh, everything is highly regimented. Um, you know, there's, there's very little access to family through phone calls. And in fact, over the last two years, um, they've used the excuse of COVID restrictions to restrict communications even further. So uh, prisoners have not been able to receive letters from their families under the, under the pretext of we must quarantine the letters. Um, and they've not been allowed to receive you know, parcels, comfort parcels containing books or magazines, that sort of thing. Um, it's really been hard for, for prisoners the last two years. And because of COVID, uh, they were not allowed out of their cells um, for exercise and so forth. Uh, during COVID, it's got it's just got so much worse. And the other thing that's got worse is is um, sentence reductions, because in theory, the prisoners through good behaviour and in various ways can earn sentence reductions um, to bring down their sentence so they get out of the the, the, the prison sooner. Um, and what I've seen, Xi Jinping has gradually whittled away at the sentence reduction system to the point where it's really hard now for prisoners to get reductions. Um, and it, you know, it, it's very, there's a lot of defect. Yeah, you're at the mercy of a merciless system. Yes. yes. Almost two years. Peter, I always, sorry. Merciless is a very appropriate label for Xi Jinping. Extremely cruel. And, and his whole you know, behavior, his, his psychology is uh, that of what I call the death of a thousand cuts, which is an old Chinese form of torture. In other words, he's constantly um, twisting the ratchet one more knot to cause more. That's what he's doing to the whole of China. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 